Welcome to Business Talk Sister Talk. I'm Becca. And today's topic is understanding the business of consumer packaged goods. And with me today, I have James Richardson. And I would say he's a, a pretty well-known expert on this um, because he's got lots of material already out there. He has his own podcast. There's so many things he's doing. And I'm really excited to talk with him. So thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks, Rebecca, for letting me on. I, my first question for you, even before we start everything, is can you define what consumer packaged goods are for us? So basically, I define it as everything sold at Target, <laughs> Okay. Um, with the exception of, um, uh, well, almost nothing. Actually, everything at Target, yeah, that's pretty fair. The bulk of the money, though, is in something called fast-moving consumer goods. And those are the things that you buy every week or month at the grocery store or Target. Okay. <laughs> um, not so much apparel, not so much camping supplies. <laughs> yeah, all right, that's fair. Yeah, I was like, or maybe tires, but Target uh, doesn't have tires, just Walmart. <laughs> I mean, if we're since we're more pedagogical on this show, I mean, the key thing for people who are new to that industry to understand is that it's based... And what makes it different than like selling a car or selling a mattress is that, uh, you know, the business model of moving product um, in the cat in the world I'm in is based on getting the same person to come back very shortly mm -hmm. and buy some more. Yeah. Okay. And that's the fundamental thing you have to remember because it's the basis of everything I do. And that makes it different than selling a mattress online, which you will buy once every 10 years. Okay. And by yeah. the time you need, by the time you need the new mattress, you'll have no idea who sold you the first one, and you probably won't care because you will be off to the next new mattress company. Mm -hmm. In other words, okay. loyalty doesn't loyalty doesn't matter. So that's why you'll see like, um, uh, that's why you'll see a lot of flash in the pan companies in something called durable goods. Hmm. Okay. And these are could be consumer goods technically, because they're marketed on the television and on Facebook to you but they know you're only going to buy it once. Mm -hmm. And so their approach to growth and the market and running their whole business is totally different. <laughs> okay. So this is it's more a game for rich people because you have to have a massive ad budget for, for durable goods. If you're going to sell something one time and make it a big mm -hmm. business, you have to have a massive advertising budget. Okay. Okay. So that's <laughs> End good of news. Story. <laughs> good news for us because be filthy rich. <laughs> yeah. If you want to do lower, lower um, price things or like have a less budget, you can be in the consumer packaged. Goods, you need right? something that's purchased weekly and consumed daily. Okay. Does that make sense? So the yeah. package empties on a right. daily basis. And that's really where you want to be um, if you can. My next question then, and this kind of goes into <laughs> a little bit more about what exactly do you do then? So my, my business is working with fast growing uh, food, beverage, personal care, household goods brands that are consumed daily and weekly uh, by consumers, by millions of consumers. I, I work for the premium priced insurgents, the people who are trying to take on Frito-Lay, Kraft, Pepsi, General Mills. Um, the people who are selling to dissatisfaction with mainstream brands that are sold at Walmart. Hmm, okay. So more so, like the high end maybe, or is it, is it not necessarily always? So they're called end? in the media, you, they're called natural organic brands. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that's more or less the processing standard for the products. So they don't use synthetic chemicals, petrochemicals, 
um, and about 10,000 other additives inserted to, to American foods. Wow, that's there's a lot actually of additives. A book, there's a book you can buy, and you'll you'll never shop at Walmart again if you buy this book. It's the title. It's by a nutritionist. I don't know if she put out a recent edition. I bought it 20 years ago, and it's a dictionary. It's called the Dictionary of Food Additives. Wow. And there's 10,000. There's 10,000 additives in the book. That's a lot of additives <laughs> when you and think about it. More, yeah, more than half are synthetic. In other words, they are laboratory-derived chemical, fractionated chemicals, um, heavily linked to gas and oil refineries. So there, there are petrochemicals that come out of gas and oil refineries, like your gasoline in your, in your car, mm-hmm. um, that are deemed food grade Wow. By our, by our government and put into food. Okay. And beverages. That seems a little scary. <laughs> the, but... most, the, most common, the most common one is propylene glycol, which is windshield wiper um, lubricant in your windshield wiper fluid. And that's also, that's in uh, hundreds of products. Wow. So that's the most extreme case I'm giving you, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's hmm. just, if you, get, if you get the book, I guarantee you'll, you'll have to change your diet. <laughs> and, and so the world I'm selling, the world I'm working in are people who, it's not so much that they're ideological about that battle, but they're, um, they're interested in either premium quality or they wanted to deprocess some category mm. that they were dissatisfied with, uh, you know, like frozen entrees or something. So they wanted to take on that mission and they developed the solution. Uh, some of them are horrible and some of the products are amazing. And some scale to be nine figure businesses. You probably heard of Annie's Mac and Cheese. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, it's a half billion dollar brand now that was only $4 million in 2000. 21 years ago. Okay. So those are the kinds of brands I work with, you know, and they're usually at the four and $5 million level. Like no one knows where this is going. Nobody's looking at them and saying, wow, they're not on the cover of Inc. Magazine, but they are premium price goods. So they're not, you know, they're for a primarily for college educated households in the United States. Those are the folks who are increasingly buying this food. Okay. And demanding this level of quality. Um, Mm -hmm in ever greater numbers and their pantries are becoming more devoted to this stuff. Interesting. So I, I guess I have a question about when, when you started doing this, why did you start working in this industry? Well, I originally got into CBG because I was a market researcher. So I was an, I'm an anthropologist. I, I jumped off the academic train because it was making me miserable. I, I found myself in market research, which is where a lot of social scientists wind up. Okay, so anthropology uh, is a study of people, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm a, my focus was, my specialization in, in graduate school was how people display their social identities in mm. public space mm-hmm. and how they conceal some and reveal others and how they do that and what's at stake behind that. Um, so basically, folks like myself are trained to study human interaction, displays of symbols, language, behavior, and what it's what's behind it? What are the mm-hmm. unconscious logics behind it? Yeah. I feel like uh, that would be a hard thing to do, even in like a market research aspect of it like is, interviewing it is, people. Right. It is. It's hard to use traditional techniques. Mm-hmm. And I was, so I trained in non-traditional techniques, but I also had to learn how to do interviews very cleverly, like a, like an FBI negotiator, or criminologist, because that's, People don't actually, people aren't really self-aware of why they 
do a lot of what they do. Mm-hmm. And that's one reason that human society functions is that we don't have to think about it. You know, you don't have to think every um, 15 seconds, I got to breathe now. Mm-hmm. If you had to do that, I mean, you'd be able to do nothing else all day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Your brainstem takes care of that automatically. So in the realm of social interaction, there's an equivalent, and that is memorized, learned social behavior, which is habituated to an unconscious degree. In other words, you just make decisions unconsciously in social life, including when you're at the grocery store and you have to go pick something up for your family, right? That's a social mm-hmm. decision. You're, mm-hmm. you're not you're not engaged, you're not in some vacuum video game, like you're getting food for a real social audience and you're the person doing it. That's a social process. Now, mm-hmm. it, may, it may just be you in a cart in an empty store. It doesn't matter. It's still a social process. Well, I just, I think about when I buy food for my family and the emotional process <laughs> that goes into that is like real, you know, cause I'm like, oh yeah. Well, oh. women get a lot more, but women get a lot more emotion. Well, I think, I think when when somebody tells you like three times, like, I do not like this ketchup, never buy it again. You like have this, oh yeah, I remember we can't eat that (laughs) or whatever it is. So (laughs) I, you know, those dynamics, those general cultural dynamics and brand specific ones are something I, I did for big companies. I did the research, behavioral research for about five, seven years. And then I shifted into consulting. And and when I got into consulting, the questions became more business focused, which is, well, okay, given this behavioral trend in American society, like more and more people are eating natural foods consumed on a daily basis, like, Mm -hmm. like they're actually getting natural mac and cheese and they're consuming a case a month. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In, In the 2000s, this was absolutely bizarre to the executives of major food companies because to them, premium food and beverage, that was like things you did at the dinner party. Hmm. Oh, let's have Dom Perignon. Or in my favorite in my book was, oh, it's Christmas. Let's get a $20 Toblerone bar. Stick it under the tree. Mm. And you, it, now, before and we you did even... not, we did not eat Toblerone any other time of the year. We never wanted to. We immediately went back to M&Ms and Snickers. Yeah. And before we move on in that, I wanted so, to, I wanted to ask you, cause I know you just said, you mentioned it in your book, can you clarify what book it is and um, where they can find it? Cause I just, yeah, want to it's make sure a that's book. Available. The book is called ramping your brand, okay. how to ride the killer CPG growth curve. And it's written for uh, startup entrepreneurs who are actively in the market. Okay. Um, and have been for a couple of years. So it may not be the audience I'm talking to right now, um, but this could be you in the future. Uh, and certainly it'll give you a, the first half of the book will give you a sense of the, the design challenge involved in being a successful entrepreneur in the world that I'm in. And generally speaking, you need to command a premium price if you want your business to, to function and be solvent, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's funny when I, the market has become investors and everybody else have been interested in natural organic and premium brands, mainly because they've been the engine of all the growth and consumer packaged goods in the last 20 years. It's Kind mm-hmm. Bar, Skinny Pop, Vita Coco, Coconut Water, all these brands, even vitamin water was a premium price product in the first five years. We've mm-hmm. all forgotten that because it's at Walmart for a buck a bottle, but it, it was atrociously expensive in LA in the late nineties when it started. So it's the right way to start when you don't have a lot of money because you're making a lot of money on every single sale. And then mm-hmm. if you can get, if you can get 10% of your people to buy it like five times a week, you get this real, that's the engine of exponential growth um, in the world I'm in is getting what they call super fans. 
to mm-hmm. habituate to buying cases a month, you know, and then you have this second group out who's buying it, you know, cases every other month. And yeah. that nu- that nucleus creates a rapidly growing business and it creates like psychotic gonzo fans who then go on Instagram and then tell other friends to go do it, right? So that's what's happening in 2021. 20 years ago, they would just go to parties and tell everybody old school mm-hmm. way. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, now, they're doing it offline too, but that's how these barons get built. That's, um, they have an electric street level organic energy to them, uh, but they're not in the media. Okay. <laughs> I mean, they're not in the mainstream media, right? It's not on CNN, but right. quiet, quietly it's building. Um, and well, it's, sort of, what, what, it's that's the sort of what's why... happening to my book. <laughs> well, and I think, I think that's kind of what, what you were mentioning, like how people were like, oh, this is just coming out of nowhere. Why is it people are buying this stuff in most of these bigger brands and they don't even see it coming. And I think that's the point is like, it's no. slow and quiet and it's growing. And then all of a sudden it's a main competitor. So yeah, for those still in school, high school specifically, this is, um, this is trigonometry, right? This is, if you studied logarithms, then you probably studied exponential growth, probably glossed over it. But if you go back to your textbook, I'm sure there's something in there about the logarithm of exponential growth. Now, if you study the COVID-19 virus and how it accelerates through local communities, it's the same logarithmic math, hmm. math right? So when you, have a, when you have viral caseload doubling every two weeks or one week, you basically have exponential growth in caseload, right? And so we've all been witnessing that with this pandemic. And believe it or not, uh, exponential growth is a phenomenon that's happening in many, many, many other parallel sectors. And CPG is one of them. It's just much less common in consumer packaged goods because up until very recently, the people who control the, um, your access to anything, the large mm, companies, mm-hmm. they control the shelves at the main retailers. And so they literally, historically, have been the primary options that you literally see. Yeah, the gatekeeper. Yeah, if you don't see the other option, then you can't make that other choice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But see, that's all withered away because the retailers are letting natural organic right into the main aisles. Annie's is right next to Kraft Mac and Cheese. It's right next to it. Um, And so as the world of retailing is changing, then online, just the online group, the online portal really doesn't care who's Frito-Lay and who's General Mills versus the nobody brand. Oh, that's so true. It only cares if there's more traffic. To Frito Lay. So you can really level the playing field there. That opens up choice. That has given, um, so as these gates have fallen, it's a lot easier for entrepreneurs and CPG to, to get to a million dollars, to get to 5 million, to get to 10 million. What's still very, very hard is to become what I would call a scale brand, which is 100, 125 million or more, where you're going to actually start to influence the entire national scene in both mm-hmm. retailing as well as culture. Like you'll become a thing. Yeah, you will that be people on. Do. Main, right. You will be interviewed by mainstream media outlets by the time you get there. You know, so now it may be once, and they'll forget you. You know, um, Vita Coco had its two to three year media circus for a while. You know, but <laughs> you know now nobody talks about. It. <laughs> so, so these brands, you know, they come up, they get to a certain scale, and then very few of them get to where Kind Bar and Chobani are, where they're multi billion dollar brands. Mm-hmm. So would you say that it's kind of a risky place to be in for long-term if you're not consistently developing new things, because, um, you, you could basically become just a part of a fad instead of a actual sticking consumable yeah. thing. Yeah. I mean, there, the risk with the risk 
that I've seen for entrepreneurs with chasing fads is that um, if you pick the right one, like uh, keto, mm-hmm. a couple a couple years ago, two to three years ago, uh, retailers were looking for anybody, any supplier. So you could easily get on the shelf, and then you so you get a lot of what they call B two B sales to the retailer, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you think oh my, I've hit the jackpot, right? But you don't yet know how to run a company. Mm. You don't know how to sustain working capital and maintain cash flow. And so there's a lot of these folks who they, they get in and then they flame out. They flame out because they actually can't service the demand at the mm. retailer. That's the problem with chasing fans is that you actually have to have a network and some seed capital to be able to move really fast. And most people don't. So that, but that's a rare occurrence. Most people don't time the market that brilliantly. Most people are a couple years before or ahead of a major mm. trend. Okay. That's, and that's where a lot of my clients are. And I think um, a lot of my clients are actually way ahead, right? And so when you're that innovative, but there are signs that you have a hook to, to a scale, that's when my, the, what my book is about, exponential growth becomes really powerful because you're doubling, you're doubling the business every year, but exponential growth is doubling off a small base, right? It's like compound interest in a mutual fund. Um, and it's one reason why so many people last March poo-pooed the pandemic. Hmm. And even, even in last April poo-pooed the pandemic as New York was going through a huge surge, there were still people who were like, eh, there's nothing. And the national daily death rate was still pretty low in April. Right? But the epidemiologists, people who are basically world-class statisticians, as well as virologists, <laughs> they run big calculus math all the time in their sleep. So they knew where this was headed. This is when the daily death rate was in like 10 and 15. And I did a projection out with three weeks of the first data. And then hmm. we would get, we were getting, we were going to get to 5,000 deaths a day by the end of April, had we not locked down cities. Huh. So are there key- That's the power. So that's the power of exponential labs. By the time you notice it, it's already too it's late. too late to control yeah. it. Mm-hmm. I was just gonna say, and this yeah. is the public health lesson. But the other thing is, with CBG, if you're writing, if you're creating that exponential growth, you obviously you're there every day. So it's it's actually painfully slow to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because think about it. If you were open up Excel and go half a million, then double it to one million, then double it to two million, and then double it to four million. Stop. How long is it going to take to get to hundred million, guys? Seems like a long time. Mm-hmm. Because I just counted four times, we're only at four million. Right. It's actually only another couple steps. <laughs> so that's how doubling works, right? So, so one of my questions with yeah. that is: Are there key milestone marks that um, a person, like if they're growing that kind of business, should mm-hmm. hit to make sure they're on the right path? Um, what kind of metrics do you see typically? Like if you're doing yeah, these I, things, you're getting there. Because a lot of people now start online with consumer packaged goods. And I basically mm-hmm. tell everybody on the internet that that's what you should be doing. Like, unless okay. you're selling frozen food, which is about the only non, like, because there the economics are upside down. So you, again, you have to be a rich person. Yeah. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Or you have to have a couple million in seed money. But if, if you just want to do like a nutrition bar or something else, start online. Okay. Lowest risk. Um, yeah, because you can get much fun, better data. You get world-class data on your consumers much earlier in the process. And then you can course correct much earlier when you're still small. Uh, The number one thing that you have to be able to prove is that without spending a lot of promotional money, whether it's a sponsored ad on Amazon or or whether it's a discount promo at a grocery store, if you get into one, the brand needs to be growing without promotion. 
because that's the sign that people are talking about it to other people and getting them to do to, to buy it or the people who bought it earlier are buying more and more. It's one of those two things and they're both good things. Okay. But if well, you, so you need enough time. You need to be small for just long enough to be able to notice, which is not impossible. It's easier to do that now than ever um, before you go and hit the gas. And that's basically the big lesson of my book is that unfortunately when the way that retailing is working now is that everybody's kind of like book publishers, people at Target and, mm -hmm. and Hy-Vee and all these people, the merchandisers are like, they become like book editors. Okay, so they're, yeah. they're, they're, they basically, they pick failures all the time. They have no idea what they're doing. They don't have any better sense than me as what's going to, uh, probably less sense than me, what's going to be a big hit because <laughs> I'm actually studying the link between design and behavior. They're not. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, um, and they don't, they're desperate to find the next big one. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to find that and they want to be the hero. And so the way they do that is like a book editor. They just let a whole bunch of st stuff through. Not everything, but more than they should. Right. So our stores are in America are totally oversupplied. Like the number mm -hmm. of brands in any category usually is not justifiable um, from an operational efficiency perspective. If you're really like McKinsey management consultant, you're like this, if the store was one third the size and we rationalize these better, we would make even more money because we'd have a lower electricity bill. Mm -hmm. Right. But instead we maintain the store size and the fixed costs. And we just pray that at rotating in these new products that enough of them will continue to grow, that we'll get growth. So, so this well, is the nightmare of running a supermarket. And so they let all sorts of weird stuff in. They let more and more weird stuff in that is not market ready, has no scale potential, doesn't even have growth potential, and is not being run in by particularly good business people. Mm. Because they want to find that one but they also make money. This is what a lot of people don't understand. The supermarkets, especially, they make money off fees charged oh, for the, the slotting suppliers. space. Yeah. Yes, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they have an incentive actually to not care too much about how successful you're going to be because they have an incentive to, they actually have an incentive for you to fail. That's unfortunate to think about. <laughs> well, it's a very cynical industry. So yeah. I think this is another reason why people say start online. You get better data about your consumers, you can course correct. And you'll be bigger. You'll actually have a business by the time you go and say, hey, hello, Hy-Vee, I'd like to get in your stores. Now you actually have a multi-million dollar business. And that, believe me, that conversation will go differently. Okay. Well, and you, I have... you, will, you will also sound more professional by that. Yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, no, that makes sense. So I um, want to make sure that we stay on time. And I know that we're going to do another episode next week together. So I'm super excited about that. So if you're listening to this one, you'll definitely want to check out the episode after this, um, where we start talking a little bit more about um, what that looks like for business. So um, how about you tell people where they can find you or hear more from you? So I, I have a, uh, I have a blog on my site that people might be interested in. That is premiumgrowthsolutions.com. Okay. Slash backslash blog. Uh, that might be something. I'm on LinkedIn posting pretty regularly. Okay. Um, I have a explicit podcast, Startup Confidential. So that may not resonate with a lot of you listeners. But um, if you're open to that, Startup Confidential is the podcast. It's on all the major players. And that's where I actually take a more Anthony Bourdain approach to the industry so that 
people are mm. getting educated on what's what is really going on. Okay. Um, which people are not telling them. <laughs> okay. So I do I do share a lot of blinded sort of disaster stories from my client files or other sources. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, and we're gonna transition now into the gawk portion. And I know that yeah. you said you have lots of stories. So I and I was just thinking when you said Anthony Bourdain, I love. He has this mac and cheese recipe, by the way, it's on the Splendid Table website if uh, anyone's looking okay. for that. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm a big fan. I read his like bio- biography book quite a long time ago. But anyways, do you have a story about uh, an interesting experience that you've had working with brands that you wanted to share with us? I used to go to those trade shows. I, I... To trade shows for food or food and beverage yeah just oh okay i was new and i was trying to get the word out on my business and i honestly was doing a lot of market research on the startup world because yeah. it was newer mm-hmm. to me and this was in preparation for my book and so i went to the trade shows and i would always i was smart enough to know not to sell like mm-hmm. my ridiculously overpriced consulting services so <laughs> I wasn't there to sell. I literally was just there to meet people and then to sort of get, it was like a cultural immersion. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So I would go and I would eat stuff all day long. Right. Okay. Food, so there's samples everywhere. That's a great, I should just um, go just for the food. No, you, you don't. <laughs> because you don't, because, and this is the point is that, you know, like Expo West, one of the largest ones in the country, um, it'll probably never be that large again after the pandemic. But, uh, they don't screen for people have decent products. That's not how oh, they, they just sell. let anybody have a booth. I could get a booth and pretend to have a company. So um, they need some evidence that you do have a company, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, they don't, it's not like they sit there and say, mm, this is not edible. Oh no. So most of the stuff's horrible. Um, and then so I, I literally tried, I tried a, I tried, I once tried a snack bar that was so completely foul tasting (laughs) i almost gagged and i had to turn away and spit it into my hand mid-conversation and then i had to find a way to leave the conversation because i couldn't turn around with it in my hand oh yeah (laughs) that's an awkward situation (laughs) but thank god it was a trade show so there's literally thousands of people coming at you like kind of like like a zombie uh exodus you know yeah so i just basically twirled myself around and then waved with the other hand and said, sorry, I got to run. And then I literally went to the bathroom and washed my mouth. So, and not the first time, but, um, and the, you know, one of, one of the challenges is that people conceptualize innovation very easily. And then the execution but is turning not it, but in food, but in food and beverage, yeah. you know, as anyone in the industry would tell you the, well, actually anyone who's had kids will tell you, you don't even have to be in the industry. Everyone who has, a, has had a kid start parsing sensory distinctions. You didn't even know were possible. <laughs> Therefore saying, don't ever buy this again because la la la. And you have no idea what they're talking about. Um, our palate, our nose is very, very sensitive to all sorts of nuance uh, and culture determines culture and exposure, which is sort of interrelated. So in other words, whatever you had in the first five years of life in terms of sensory profiles, mm-hmm. that has a massive effect on the rest of your life, mm-hmm. unless you make a conscious effort to change it. 
Okay. Um, on what you're going to think is normal in every category you have. Well, right? and I so, think there's a lot of interesting info on that and I want to get to it, but we're going to do it next right. week because okay, if, if you enjoyed this podcast, <laughs> um, you can definitely follow us on Instagram, business talk, sister Gok, And if you uh, have a question for uh, James, you should definitely check out um, his book because I read it and it was actually really great. And I learned so much about consumer goods um, and we will see you next week.